0: Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you tonight in song and now in prayer for the greatness of your victory over every enemy that we have. We thank you for the completeness of that victory. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that you will have a final victory that that victory will have the final say related to each of our lives until ultimately one day we stand before you forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth. We bless you, Father, for your Son, your love for us that is manifest in him, and we thank you for how completely he has overwhelmed our past and fills our present and dominates our future as far as eternity. We bless you. And, Fathers, we turn tonight now to the book of Jeremiah. We do so with the acknowledgement that we have within each of us the same kind of person from Adam and Eve as what these ancient children of Judah had within them. That old nature it wants to live for self, it wants to live for pleasure, it wants to live for idolatry, it wants to live for sin, every bit as much, Lord, as as it did in their life. And we pray, Lord, that even though we might stand before you tonight and not be in that same condition to the degree that they were, that you would use our time in your word to build up our inner man to cut away every tentacle of the old man that wants to pull us into the same lifestyle and the same judgment as the children of Judah ended up being pulled into and the judgment that they faced. Use your word to sanctify us and purify us and keep us free tonight in the freedom that you have purchased for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Please be seated. Jeremiah chapter 11 is where we find ourselves tonight. On Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves at this point in the book of Jeremiah. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with the Bibles and you just wave to them, they will put one in your hand, you'll be fairly lost without one uh, tonight as we look to cover uh, two plus chapters a night. Uh, on, these, on these Sunday evenings and allow you to follow along. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord uh, to you uh, this evening. Jeremiah, as he uh, begins chapter 11 and, and the prophecies of his that are recorded here, uh, they're known as the message of the broken uh, covenant. And it's important to realize that there was probably a little bit of a historical context for uh, these messages that he gives in chapters 11. Uh, and uh, 12 where Jeremiah reminds the children of Judah of the covenant of the law of Moses and the covenant of the law of Moses was basically if you obey God, God will bless you. If you disobey God, you will force him to judge uh, judge you and uh, that there is a curse associated with disobeying his commandments. It isn't unlikely that this particular uh, message that he delivers here in these two chapters uh, it, it occurs at the time of the discovery. Some of you might remember when we were in the historical books uh, of the Old Testament and our journey through the Scriptures that in the uh, days of Josiah, a priest by the name of Hilkiah discovered scrolls within the temple. Uh, They were so far away from studying the Word of God or having any concern for the Word of God. Even the priests, the people, whatever, it was like they stumbled on a set of scrolls, a copy of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and it was so neglected that it was in a heap somewhere in the restoration of the temple in the kind of revival that Josiah brought to the southern kingdom of Judah. He was a good king. And so when this was found, the law was brought to Josiah, it was read to him, and he realized the country that he is a king over is almost completely on the wrong side of this covenant. We are on the disobey God side of the covenant, which means God is going to judge us, and His word is actively working against us. It is, it is a, it will result in a curse upon our lives. And uh, so uh, Josiah, a great king, led one of the great revivals that was in his lifetime of the southern kingdom of Judah. But it was a surface revival. It was like, okay, now we got a Christian president, and so he's got all the power, and so we better all kind of get in line with this, at least outwardly, to hold on to our power and our jobs and so forth, But inwardly and in the heart of those in Judah, it hardly made a dent at all. They continued their idolatry. They were just a little more circumspect about it and and so forth. And so Jeremiah probably now seizes upon the fact that these scrolls have been discovered now and he makes that, the Holy Spirit does, God does in giving him prophecies, to make now the law and... uh, The blessing and cursing of the law, uh, the focus of this particular uh, series of prophecies uh, that he gives. The word, verse, uh, chapter 11, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, here it is to the people. Hear the words of this covenant, speaking about the Mosaic covenant. And speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Curse it is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant. And God had been clear. Uh, you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. There is a curse, uh, a non-blessing and something more than that. There is a curse associated with the disobedience of any of God's commandments. The Bible teaches that God's commandments are good, that they are not burdensome. Not only are God's commandments not burdensome, but they are liberating. And to violate God's commandments is to really, as I mentioned last week, to work against nature, to work against creation, work away against the way that we've been created. So there is a natural curse associated with disobeying God's word because it is not how we were meant to live. But then there is another element where God comes in and part of that curse of disobeying him is that he begins to come in and chasten us because he loves us And then ultimately, he has the ability to raise chastening into a position of judgment, whatever it takes to humble us. And so God is reminding them of this. Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt and from the iron furnace that Egypt was. And I said to them, this was when God gave the law to Moses upon the departure there, Uh, from, from Egypt, obey my voice and do all that I command you. So, and that's a key word, shall you be my people and I will be your God. That's the evidence of the relationship. And a concern for the relationship is obedience. And then that obedience then leads to blessing. That, another important word, I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. God desired to bless them, told them that their life would be prosperous as they obeyed him. And Jeremiah answered as he receives this prophecy from the Lord, so be it. Yes, this is where we want, uh, Jeremiah said, this is where I want the people to be. I want them to be in this place where... They will obey you and they'll continue to enjoy your blessings. And then the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem saying, hear the words of the covenant and do them. And of course, you see, it's worth underlining, at least with your eyes, there's the word "hear," and there's the word do. The hearing isn't enough. Uh, the hearing is important, but it's never enough to just hear the word of God uh, to be in right relationship with God or in the place in which I'm going to receive the blessings that he really wants to pour out upon our lives. He really is for us, but it necessitates the doing. That's why James would write in the New Testament, don't be hearers of the word only, or be doers of the word and not hearers only, the importance of both of those things. Again, the danger with the children uh, of Judah, same danger that we faced, we talked about it a last a little bit last week, this great temptation that we have to consider ourselves to be spiritual and to be blessable by God based solely upon how much we know of the Word of God, rather than how much of the Word of God we know and are obeying. Both those things are important. It's a tremendous self-deception, and uh, God is always looking to open their eyes up to it. For I earnestly, verse 7, exhorted your fathers in the day. I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. And so God had been uh, speaking all of this uh, to them for a le- very uh, long time, this wasn't something new that, uh, that he had kind of sprung uh, upon them. Uh, he had been telling them this all the way back uh, before uh, the time of, of Moses. This was not something, uh, a new way. This was something that he had uh, always been. Then verse 8, very interesting verse. Yet they did not obey Or incline their ear. This was their response to God's word. But everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. And therefore I will bring upon them all of the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. So God said, listen and do. And what they were doing is we will not listen and we will not do. And so God is going to have to now uh, turn up the fire in order to get their attention. God always wins in that battle, by the way i don 't know how far you 've walked down that path, but he 's a lot stronger than us, and uh, he can pin us in a second and and so he 's going to have to raise the heat here too. Uh, let them realize that they are not God and they are not in charge. That phrase is an interesting one in verse 8 where he says, Yet they did not obey nor or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. This is what happened within Judah. The very same thing is happening very strongly within our culture, uh, The Word of God was being jettisoned. It was being thrown off. And uh, you never throw off. Everybody's got a standard in their life for right and wrong. Uh, All of us have that. You don't throw one off and leave a vacuum. We always replace it with some other standard of right and wrong. So they throw off the law of Moses and the the definition of right and wrong in the law uh, of uh, of uh, Moses. And uh, instead of that now, the replacement for that is everyone just followed the dictates of his evil heart. And so we see this thing going on now, the throwing away off of uh, what we would call the Judeo-Christian ethic that compromises our judicial system, the laws of our country. We already know that a long time ago, at least in my Christian uh, lifetime, that, uh, the United States of America has moved away from being as strongly Christian as it once, uh, once was. And so, uh, that began to ebb away. But, uh, you know, Two or three decades ago, people were okay with, all right, I'm not going to be a Christian. That's not the life that I want to live. I want to go out and do my thing. But no, I agree largely with the definitions of right and wrong that make up our laws in this country. And I know they come from the Bible. They've done the country good. I don't want that to be moved. But the longer we go now, and we see it, you know, very much in the last few years in the United States where the idea is, no, I don't want to be a Christian, but I also don't want the Bible to be the definition of right and wrong within this culture and so now the attempt to change the country at an even more uh, foundational level more than just an individual level now we want to change this uh institutionally nationally in terms uh of uh, of the laws and so we see this thing where uh now uh, when it talks about uh, everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. It's interesting to consider that in terms of, of how that works individually within our lives. And again, for me, a point of comparison is how all of that is developed even uh, within uh, m- my lifetime, where now uh, definitions of right and wrong are no longer being determined from the Word of God, but they are being determined on the basis of our emotions, And so everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. It is interesting to notice, some of you that are my age, and even a little bit younger, certainly all of you that are are older than me, you remember a time in our country where if you were discussing some kind of a uh, significant kind of issue, you would give your opinion related to that issue, and then you would say to somebody, what do you think about that. And they would tell us what they thought about that. That is now gone within our culture because now people don't ask, what do you think about this? They ask, what do you feel about this? And that's a huge drop down uh, from thinking. That's why when you look at laws that are being passed or what people are doing or the opposition to the commandments in the Bible that are a foundation to any nation. You go, what in the world? How could a thinking person make these kind of decisions? What are they thinking? They're not thinking. They are feeling. Everything today in the culture that we're in, everything is feeling. Everybody's going by their feelings. I want to do, I feel this, I want to do this, it makes me feel good. Yeah, but what about the ramifications of... A transgender restrooms, what about the ramifications for young boys and girls in locker rooms and all it doesn 't matter. The thinking echoes on behind the scenes. What matters is what makes me feel good about this issue and that 's just one example that 's in the news right now all the time and has been for a number of years. But you take it everywhere, everywhere it is I feel, I feel. I feel, and it always ends in a disaster. And do you know why it always ends in a disaster? Because our hearts are evil. And Jeremiah is going to bring it out a little bit later in his his prophecies here. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It is a horrible step downward for a culture to move from I think to I feel. And the best thing that anybody can ever say in terms of a moment of sanity in this world related to any issue of right and wrong is the Bible says. But Judah, very far away from this now, Uh, though, uh, you know, a part of Israel, a part of a, you know, long history and so forth with God. But this is the kind of pressure that is working upon us, even us as Christians. Again, you think in your own life, and when is the last time anybody asked you what you thought about something as opposed to what you feel? And it's the same pattern, it's the same move, and, and, and the the same experiment that is going on that ends uh, very, very uh, badly for Judah. Necessary, but it didn't need to happen. And related to our nation, we'll see how things continue to unfold. And the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And here's the conspiracy. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. Now, when God calls this a conspiracy, he's declaring that this move away from God's word is not random. Uh, This is something that is determined. It is something that is widespread in Judah at this particular point in time. And that to turn away from God's word and turn back to the iniquities of uh, their forefathers who refused to hear my words. Let's be careful tonight, just as a way of application. For you as a Christian, I, I hope every single one of us in this room had parents that we could emulate every single thing they ever said or ever did in our experience uh, with them. But sometimes you get raised in a different environment by that, and even by parents who were Christians, or but not really uh, too serious about it, or whatever, whatever it might be. And to realize and to look at our own lives. You know, we come from a gene pool. I look at my gene pool, rough gene pool, but all I've done is just make it rougher yet for my kids. Uh, but when you when you look at um, you know this at things and you see in there's where we have the tendency to follow our parents and their, their model in in certain ways, but if it violates. Uh, the Word of God, just because I've become comfortable with it because it's been a part of our my parents' life, I raised w- raised in this kind of thing, but it was an iniquity. Listen, we don't need to follow them in that. And this sin became generational within uh, Judah. One generation followed the other, the other, the other, because the influence of parents being the definition of right and wrong rather than the Word of God, rather than one generation standing up and saying, wait a second, what does the Bible say about what my relationship with God is supposed to look like? And if it matches what my parents were like, fine. If it doesn't, I go with the Bible. Because some of us come out of a pretty mixed up sometimes a spiritual situation. Uh, in our homes. And so they have gone after other gods, middle of verse 10, and to serve them They followed their uh, forefathers in idolatry. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant and I, uh, that which I made with their fathers. And therefore thus says the Lord, behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Uh, The cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense, but they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. We're going to see in another verse or so that uh, Judah and Jerusalem itself were just jammed full of idols and shrines and idolatry. And God says, listen, there it all... Anybody can worship any stupid, goofy thing when everything's going right. But the test of a God is when the bottom falls out. And he's saying, these gods that you have replaced me with, when the trouble comes, they're not even going to be able to defend themselves from being taken captive by the Babylonians, let alone to defend you. Ah, but there's God again making sense. And uh, in warning them, for according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the very streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. And so I like God's language there. He calls Baal a shameful thing. I mean, the people ought to have been ashamed of trading the true and the living God in to worship uh, Baal, who was kind of uh, the God of power, the God of, uh, of nature, and so forth. And what a, a terrible exchange it was, and to worship him, uh, Baal, was a shameful thing. And so he speaks then. To Jeremiah and says, Do not pray for this people, or lift up a, pr- a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble and so God tells Jeremiah uh, that not to bother interceding for them because if one person 's intercession uh, jeremiah 's for these people, uh, it, unless it 's coupled with the people 's repentance then that prayer is ineffectual uh, in, uh, in the situation. Verse 15, the Lord declares, What has my beloved to do in my house? So here's the language that he uses to describe Judah. Was the language that he used to describe uh, Israel in the Old Testament? His beloved. We remember the imagery in the Old Testament is is that Judah or the Jews were likened to the wife of uh, uh, the Lord. In the New Testament, we are called the bride of Christ. But both of them speak of tremendous intimacy. God wanted. An intimate relationship with them, despite all of the things that they had done in hurting him in this relationship, he still calls them my beloved. What has my beloved to do in my house? Speaking uh, of the temple, here they are coming into the temple, and there appearing to be one thing worshiping there, and then they go home, and God's watching them as much at home as ever they are when they're in church, and and. Says, what are they doing in my house, giving the pretense to love me in this way, when privately this is what they've been doing? Having done lewd deeds with many, and so much of the worship of the false gods involves sexual immorality, and the holy flesh uh, has passed from you when you do evil. So, not only lewdness, but also. They were marked by evil. And when you do evil, then you rejoice. I mean, they're more excited about sinning than praising God uh, in the temple. The Lord says uh, concerning them, The Lord called your name green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. That was the, uh, the image that God had related to his people. An olive tree is a beautiful tree. It's a very beautiful tree in Israel and it's productive it's hardy it's strong it's it's beautiful that's what he created them uh, uh to be and and longed for them to be this is the before picture uh, of the judgment and with the noise of a great tumult he that is God has kindled fire on it and its branches are broken and so he's going to be forced to judge Uh, the nation in this way be like a tree that's just been uh, set on fire and broken in pieces for the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel, uh, and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense to myself. Every time we sin, we sin first and foremost against God. We sin against other people. But every sin we commit is always a sin against ourselves, which uh, they have done against themselves. Now, in verse 18, God makes Jeremiah aware of a death plot, an assassination uh, plot that has been uh, planned against him uh, from uh, the men of the city of Anathoth. And uh, the significance of that, it's Jeremiah's hometown. The people in his own hometown want to kill him in order to silence his voice and stop people from following him. Now that's something, one thing to have the whole nation against you and all, and you think, well, at least I can go home and head to the coffee shop and see a couple of people that are supportive. His own hometown in the southern kingdom of Judah is desiring and plotting his death. That's worse than anyone else was doing at this point in time. Jesus spoke about a prophet not being without honor except in his own hometown and and in his own household. And Jeremiah is going to get a has a taste of that uh, even before Jesus uh, came into the world to say that. Now the Lord gave me knowledge of this assassination plot, and I know it. For you, Lord, showed me their doings. He would have never been aware of it if God hadn't shown him in some kind of revelation, a word of knowledge. In the midst of this, while all of this is going on, he's just ministering and serving the Lord and so forth. They're plotting his death behind his back. He's completely ignorant of it, totally unaware. I mean, he just he couldn't he just couldn't conceive that they would do something like this to him or to a prophet of God. And so I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. And so you picture a lamb uh, being brought along by its master and the lamb is just following along a rope around its neck and it thinks it's on a walk. It doesn't know that it's going to the slaughterhouse. It's completely ignorant. Ignorance is bliss. And here is Jeremiah, he knows nothing about it, and yet he's being brought into uh, this attempt upon his life. I did not know that they had devised schemes against me saying, uh, let us destroy the tree that is Jeremiah and its fruit, those lives that he uh, was impacting. And let us cut him off from the land of the living. Let's kill him that his name may be remembered no more. A pretty serious situation. Kind of puts, uh, can put our trials in perspective. Not all of them, but a few trials are greater than this in life. And so Jeremiah cried, but O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them uh, for, you, uh, for to you I have revealed my cause. And so uh, not so much the weeping prophet at this point, he's asking God to take vengeance out upon those that were judging him. And this is a good move on his part. We're told to do the same thing. Even when we're betrayed on a level like Jeremiah's being betrayed, and it's even worse than it's described here, as we'll see in just a few minutes here. But he becomes aware of it, but he entrusts vengeance to God in the situation. He didn't take it into his hands. In the New Testament, we're told concerning wrongdoing even gross wrongdoing that is done to us in life that vengeance belongs to god god said vengeance is mine it is not yours i will repay i think very often when we hear that all we hear is vengeance is mine rats i can't take vengeance and we forget about the second part when god says i will repay i will take care of this in a way that you couldn't even dream of being able to take care of it. And so when we entrust something... To God in terms of vengeance, or to make some a, a grossly unfair situation uh, to make that right and to make them understand and to make them pay, it is to realize that that is not to do nothing in the situation. It is to do something very significant. It is to do the very best thing we can. Leave it with Him. God will repay. There's a promise. That is a part of that uh, exhortation to leave it with him. And therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, and here's where we come to find out that this is where the plot came from and uh, God tells them a little bit about his promise of what he's going to do to them related to this plot. These men of Anathoth who seek your life saying, do not prophesy, this is what they were upset about, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord lest you die at our hand. Uh, and, and so this was the kind of thing they were saying uh, to him. Remember as we began the book, Anathoth was a priestly city. And so this this place is filled with priests. Here's priests huddling together to put a plot together to assassinate a prophet of God. I mean, things have gone sideways spiritually within the nation, and yet that's exactly where things were. And it tells us how uh, deeply invested the priests were uh, in Judah at this time in all of the idolatry that was going on, all of the false worship that was going on, somehow the ideas always follow the money. Somehow they were making money off of this. It was supporting them and their families and so forth. And they didn't want a Jeremiah to come in and upset this kind of thing. And therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 22, of hosts, and that's a great name for the Lord here, the Lord of hosts. It speaks of him as the God who is head of an army. He is the head of an angelic host, an angelic army. So God comes with this name. Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And, uh, the, and there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth, uh, even the year of of their punishment. And so uh, the Lord comes in and uh, speaks to him about uh, what he doesn't always tell us. He tells Jeremiah here, not only is vengeance mine, I will repay, but he tells him how he will repay. They will experience the same judgment all of Judah will experience. Uh, Chapter 12, beautiful chapter, of course. Say that about every chapter in the Bible, right? But I have this kind of a gift, a gift for the obvious. It is tremendous. And uh, don't be in awe, please. Don't be in awe uh, of it. So Jeremiah cries out, Righteous are you, you, O Lord, when I plead with you. And that, that first line, righteous are you, is very important to notice. He's going to pose a question to God, a couple of questions to God. Because he can't, things don't add up for him in terms of how God uh, works. And uh, so he begins, All right, Lord, uh, I'm going to begin these questions that I'm asking of you. And I'm asking these questions of you because, not because I am doubting or questioning your judgment or your righteousness or your wisdom. That's a given. That's what I'm operating from. And it's not a lack of faith that these questions I'm going to pose to you are, but it comes from the knowledge, uh, the recognition that you are righteous. It's interesting that many questions that we face in life, including questions that he's going to ask here in a moment, there's so much we're going to see in a moment, isn't it? But so often in the questions that we, that come into our mind as Christians, so often the questions occur out of a lack of faith. But oftentimes we uh, have questions that occur within our mind because we do have faith. We know how big God is. We know how powerful He is. We know how wise He is. We have a long history of those things within our life. We know how easily He could change anything in a second without breaking a sweat, with no effort at all. And so when we know these things about God and then He doesn't change those things, then that creates an entirely different set of questions within our mind. And these are the questions that come from not a lack of faith, but a faith in God. This is exactly where... Jeremiah finds himself. He says, let me talk with you, God, about your judgments. And then here's the question. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? You ever wonder about that? Why in the world they're so wealthy and they're so healthy and they got all those kids in a big happy family and they own... You know, a house in Pacific Grove and a house in New York City and a house in L.A. and and all these different places and everything seems to be going uh, so great for them and yet they're wicked. I remember when I was growing up, John Lennon, uh, he did a song called Instant Karma. And it's the idea of, you know, you kind of uh, uh, get what you give. And it's certainly not a biblical uh, principle. But the reason that karma was uh, appealing to John Lennon in the song is the idea is that when somebody does bad, instant karma is that bad comes right back to them, puts them in their place, teaches them a lesson. And we don't deal with karma because it isn't real, but we deal with God. But sometimes we can wish, God, why don't you just, you know, knock that thing down? Why don't you put them in their place? Listen to what they're saying. Look at all the people that they're deceiving. Why don't you just jump in here and let them have it? I mean, we want it fast, and it can frustrate us. Not me, did you sense any frustration in my life at all? But we want it instant, just like this, you know. And so the questions get posed. And here you see someone else who is living for the Lord and another part of the world maybe or something, and they die of starvation at the age of 35. And you just look and say, this whole thing, it just doesn't add up for me. I don't understand the treatment that the righteous get. And Jeremiah is thinking about his own mistreatment at the hands of the wicked Why do they get to prosper the way they do and then your servants that are obedient to you have oftentimes an entirely different experience of life in the world? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? And I don't think, I think that every Christian who is a thinking Christian, every one of us is going to deal with this particular question in our life. One of the great chapters in the Bible that is given over to it completely is Psalm 73, a psalm by Asaph, and he deals with it uh, at length. And it isn't, it, and the most godly of people, they ask these questions. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Why don't you just hammer them right out of the gate? No, instead you have planted them. Uh, yes, they have taken root. Uh, they grow. They bear fruit. And you are near in their mouth. They do all the God talk and all of that, but they are very far. Uh, you are very far from their mind. And so he's thinking about the wicked. And then is usually the case in this kind of a thing where, you know, it, it isn't just, well, You know, I don't understand the prosperity of the wicked. It's usually, I don't understand the prosperity of the wicked and the mess I'm in at the moment. (laughs) And that's where Jeremiah goes. But you, O Lord, you know me. You have seen me. And you have tested my heart toward you. I've done nothing but serve you, been faithful to you, I've I've given your promises, they continue to prosper, and I'm the one having a hard life on planet Earth, and they seem to be getting away with almost murder related to me. I don't, you know, we understand where Jeremiah is coming from. And then Jeremiah goes a little bit further. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. You wanna slaughter me? Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Not much weeping going on at this particular moment. These are the mood swings of a prophet. But not just a prophet, but these are the things that we legitimately face as God's people in this world. And so pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. This is what you ought to do, God, if you're taking suggestions. And prepare them for the day of slaughter how long will the land uh, mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts of the, and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said, uh, he that is God will not see our final end. We can sin without impunity. And Jeremiah looks and says, it's not only human beings that are bearing, paying a price for their wickedness. It, all of creation is. The vegetation and uh, the, even the animal and then Jeremiah is, 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 is the response of God to Jeremiah was probably uh, not exactly what he expected, but this is the Lord's response to his uh, confusion. Jeremiah, if you have run with the footmen, and uh, so here you've got the footmen running into battle, and you're running along with you know men. That, that's one thing. Hey, it's taxing. I'm not putting it down. Boot camp. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? What are you going to do when you're tired just running along with the footmen into the battle, when the battle is actually the worst of the battle is yet ahead and uh, that you're going to find yourself uh, in the uh, the, the middle of. And if in the land of peace, in which you trusted, they've wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? And in essence, God tells Jeremiah to basically toughen up. Toughen up. And he and tells him, it's going to get worse. You ain't seen nothing yet. You ever had the Lord do that with you? And you just lay this case. up? <laughs> and what am I waiting for? A God group hug, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And they just come and we just, just, big group hug, you understand, and everything. And he doesn't do anything of the sort. He says, you ain't seen nothing here. What are you whining about? You get back into your place on the wall, buckaroo. You're not quitting. And the Lord comes in with that kind of strong medicine. And it can seem almost cruel here when He does it. But when the Spirit of the Lord is behind that word, it is exactly what we need to hear to get back into our place. We don't get to quit just because things get hard and they get difficult. Get back in that place and stay, uh, in that place, even though things are going to get, uh, even more difficult. And the beautiful thing about what God does here, and it's actually an encouragement in, in, uh, in talking to Him about what is going to come and so forth, it was God essentially telling Jeremiah, things are going to get harder, but you're going to be able to, uh, stand, uh, in, uh, in all of, uh, of what is coming. And so, uh, the Lord, uh had told Jeremiah at the very beginning of his ministry, had told him, "Don't be afraid of your faces. I'm with you to deliver you. They're not going to kill you. Your life is in my hands," and and so forth. And the Lord basically just comes back and he reminds him of that. You continue on uh, in the ministry, and so he doesn't really answer uh, uh, Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is wise here at this particular point. I think he does in a moment or two, uh, but he just tells him, "Listen, it doesn't matter how you're." This whole thing you have to stay in place and you'll be fine uh, even as it gets harder for even your brothers. Now this is where the news gets worse in verse six for even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Now that's hard. In Anathoth. When they plotted and conspired to kill Jeremiah. His own family. Was behind that conspiracy. Now when God tells Jeremiah that. How alone. Do you think you feel. In the whole world. I mean you think all right. Anathoth they can do whatever. But they never got through to my family. Jeremiah the news is worst. It began with your family. Pretty Tough. Really tough place that he finds himself in. And this is the costliness of Christian service and discipleship. And that's why when Jesus spoke to people and to us as well, he said, if any man wants to come after me, he didn't say, I'm going to put you in a headlock and I'm going to force you to follow in my will. But if any man wants to become my follower, I'll be upfront about with it about what it's going to mean. If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. This news had to be unbelievably devastating for Jeremiah. And yet he is to continue in God's call upon his life. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. They were saying things here in the family, smooth words to his face. But behind, they were the ones conspiring for his death. And then uh, God does come in now and answer jeremiah's question i think where why why do the wicked prosper why do they get away with what they're getting away with why do they get to ruin everybody's life and and so forth and damage uh, everything around them what are you going to do when are you going to put them in their place and the lord said i have forsaken my house talking about the judgment he's going to bring my house refers to the temple Uh, I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. That speaks of Judah. I have given the dearly uh, loved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Jeremiah, you think I'm doing nothing? You think I'm just going to live with this uh, forever and ever and I'm not going to address it? I am going to address it. And when I address it my way and my time, it will be with a very, very, uh, great judgment that I will bring upon them. My heritage is to me, uh, like a lion uh, in uh, the forest. It cries out against me, and therefore I have hated it. Now, you think about that uh, in a, uh, a lion and and uh, in the forest. Here's God. He's created the lion, and now you've got a lion roaring against its creator. The lion owes everything to the creator in order for it uh, to exist. stupid for a lion uh, to do that. Same thing is true with uh, the children of of Judah. God had brought them together. God had created them. God was blessing them. They owed everything to God. And then when God drew near to them, they snarled in a, you know, that aggressive kind of life-threatening way against him in the way that uh, a lion would. Well, listen, uh, I don't know how many of you have, uh, uh, well, it wouldn't, uh, I was thinking about some parallel with cats, but it would probably hurt somebody's feelings. Um, so you'd put them in their place, uh, no matter what the pet might be. And so, but this is the way that they were treating God. And God described it as, as this kind of thing. He described my heritage. That is, uh, Judah here is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around are against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field, uh, bring them to devour. So we've all seen those things maybe in school or on television or something like that. Or maybe firsthand. I've got some farm kind of folks. And uh, we're, you know, they've got a whole group of little chicks, don't they? And the chicks begin to grow, and then what happens? There's that one odd chick, uh, whether with coloring or, or some other whatever, smaller than the rest of them, or whatever, and the whole uh, group of them begin to peck at that chick, don't they? Because that chick is different. And so the, the, this observation, and he, he declares them to be a speckled vulture. They are uh, different. And because they've made themselves a speckled vulture, they are going to be the victim of both the judgment of God, but also the victim of the pecking of the nations around them. And, and here's the situation. So here you've got the southern kingdom of Judah. They've got one foot in the things of the Lord, and they've got another foot in the world. So they're an oddity. They're not at home in the world, and they're not at home in the things of God, in the kingdom of God. And everybody knows that about them. They think, man, I've got this all wired, everybody's fooled, and and everybody thinks I'm in their group. Everybody knows this person is in no man's land. They're trying to have it both ways, and you can't have it both ways. So any Christian that does that makes themselves an oddity, if not in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm. And so now what happens is this odd thing that they are is because they're not all the way in for God and they're not all the way in with the nations around them, then now God is going to have to judge them on the one hand and they will also be attacked by their enemies. There's that old saying about... Um, The the person who uh, has too much of, uh, you know, God to be happy in the world and too much of the world to be happy in God. They're in this no man's land and it is a very miserable experience. And it's dangerous because that person is going to get clobbered from both ends, even though they think they're pleasing both extremes. And that's what God is talking about here. God is going to have to judge Judah. But the second Judah shows any kind of weakness at all in that judgment, all of these surrounding nations are going to to. to come after her and try and steal every valuable thing uh, that she uh, has. It is a miserable place to try and find this middle ground. It doesn't exist. It just makes enemies of both extremes in the spiritual warfare. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. Uh, God is going to lay the blame for the ultimate fall of Judah here uh, supremely. The people were responsible, but here he blames the leaders for their failure and in, uh, in the part that they played in it. These rulers have destroyed uh, my vineyard, speaking of Judah. They've trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness, and they have made it desolate. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. The plunderers have come, all of the desolate heights in the wilderness, for the sword of the Lord shall devour. From one end of the land to the other end of the land, no flesh shall have peace. And they have sown wheat but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain but to no profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord and then he closes this chapter God does uh describing the fact that he would judge the the nations that neighbored uh Judah as well and thus says the Lord against all my uh evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused uh, my people Israel to inherit again they were looking uh for any faltering of uh, of Judah And then so they could come in and take cities and take land and take wealth and so forth. God knew all about it. And he said, behold, I will pluck them out of the land and pluck them out, uh, uh, pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Judah is going to go into captivity. They'll be taken out of the land. God declares again. And then it shall be after I have plucked them out that I will return them to the land and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. After they'd learned the lesson in the captivity, God is speaking about the fact that they would be restored uh, to uh, the land. God loves happy endings. And one of the great things about a passage like this in Jeremiah, which is so heavy, is to realize that no matter how far you or any person... Has ever backslidden in our Christian life that God is always working toward a happy ending that comes with our repentance and our returning to Him. He really does have a future and a hope for us no matter where we've been and what we've seen. It is His heart. He He loves those happy endings. And it shall be... If they will... Uh, learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name, talking about uh, the uh, surrounding uh, nations. As the Lord lives, then these nations that once taught my people to swear by Baal, uh, then they shall be established in the midst of my people as well. And so he's talking about a restoration of the nations. They will be taken captive by Babylon as well. Just because they were pagan nations, it didn't mean that idolatry was okay. It was only wrong in Judah, but it's not okay in um, you know in uh, uh, among the Philistines or among the Moabites. In the same way today, as God looks at the world, it isn't just not okay that Christians sin. It's not okay that anybody sins, and uh, so if they would turn away uh, from all of this and rejoin uh, Israel in the worship of God given that place uh, then they too would be reestablished in the midst of uh, of the land and the, the nations surrounding uh, Judah and Israel but if they do not obey i will utterly pluck and destroy uh, uh, up uh, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation says the lord so we'll stop there tonight and we'll look to pick it up in chapter 13 next week. Let's stand together.